0: You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast, with your host, Steve. Hi everyone, and welcome to this special edition of True Crime Fix. Well, in all honesty, there's not much too special about it, apart from the fact that my day job has been kicking my ass recently and I don't have a lot of spare time to dedicate to a long case this week. So instead, I thought I would do an episode on a subject instead. Firstly though, let's go through the business. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, So go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are now also available on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel. They're usually uploaded on the Friday after the release as a podcast. So please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. I would also like to welcome Kate to the True Crime Fix Patreon family. I really appreciate the support. If you want to join Kate, please come over to www.patreon.com forward slash podcast. At the start of May, a report from Members of Parliament here in the UK reported that during the first 21 days of lockdown, Calls to the National Abuse Helpline had increased by 49%. Calls to the Men Advice Line had also increased by 16.6%. The domestic abuse charity Chain also reported that the traffic through their website had increased threefold. Research by the website Counting Dead Women, a site run by Karen Agala-Smith, reported that since the official start of lockdown in the UK on the 23rd of March, 24 women have been killed in acts of domestic violence all by men well known to them. These figures are correct up until the 20th of May. There are no statistics held for men, however. This is a startling amount, and if you suspect that a friend or a loved one is a victim of such a situation, please make sure that you notify someone. Today's episode is going to be dedicated to two women who unfortunately were victims to this type of crime. Firstly today, I'm going to go across the pond to the United States. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this part of the episode. Has been dedicated to Anna Hurd. Anna Lynn Hurd was born on the 30th of April 1996 in the city of Cambridge in Minnesota. She was the daughter of Patrick Hurd and Jennifer Hutchins. She also had three siblings Patrick Jr., Justin, and Nicolette. Anna was described by her mum as being the big sister to all of them, despite the fact that she was the middle child. Her friends said that she was a beacon of life and everyone who met her instantly called her their best friend. Anna's mum and dad split up in the early part of the last decade, with her mum moving to Vernon in Texas with the children. But by the summer of 2012, Anna realised that she was missing Minnesota, so she decided to move back in with her father, who was now residing in St Paul, the state capital, situated in Ramsey County. Upon moving back, she enrolled at St Paul's North High School. As the new kid in high school, she got a lot of attention, some good and some bad due to her indie rock chick appearance with dark eye makeup and a facial piercing as well as her demeanour where she would speak her mind she had a number of girls who took an instant dislike to her despite this she tried to make the most of her high school experience and she joined the volleyball and basketball teams she also caught the attention of Anthony Mitchell a student who was four months older than her. He was a student in the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. He also volunteered at care centres, assisting living centres and battered women's shelters. They became close and had the same group of friends to hang out with. He was quiet and that was one of the things that Anna liked about him they were both into their video games. Meanwhile, the experience of living with her father was not going as expected for Anna. Her father had got a new girlfriend, so kept leaving Anna alone in the house in order to spend time with her. As time went on, Anna started to regret the decision to move to St. Paul. By the time February 2013 arrived, her life in Minnesota was starting to fall down around her. As mentioned earlier, Anna had somehow accrued a number of enemies from her first day, and by February, the bullying at school had intensified, which caused her to fight back against one of the students, resulting in her expulsion from the school. When the news reached her father they had an argument causing Anna to leave her father's house and stay with Anthony. Then Anna started to feel Anthony's possessiveness. He would constantly ask who she was texting or where she went and whom she went out with. Anthony had problems with his temper and sometimes threatened to commit suicide if Anna would leave him, saying... I would not be able to go on if you left me. Anna reached out to her mother back in Texas about moving back in with her. Anna's mother sent her the money to buy tickets to get home, saying that Anthony may follow later if he wanted to. She broached the subject with him and he seemed keen. The only proviso was that Anthony could not live in the family home. A job was lined up for Anthony, and he went about pawning some of his belongings in order to get a ticket to follow her. But Anna's interest in Anthony was starting to dwindle. Around that time, Anna had rekindled her contact with TJ, her ex-boyfriend in Texas. According to Anna's sister, TJ was 18 and Anna was 14 when they were dating and he was Anna's first love, and had remained friends with her. With Anthony's behaviour, she wondered whether a clean break from Minnesota was what she needed. Anthony Mitchell and Anna spent the evening of February 22nd 2013 together at his house in Maplewood, a town eight miles west of St Paul, before going to a friend's party. Anna had booked a ticket to return to Texas for the following day. This was going to be her last opportunity to say goodbye to her friends before making the 970 mile journey back to her mum's house. The couple arrived at the house party at approximately 11.30pm but within an hour and a half, Anthony began bugging her to leave. By 1.30am, Anna finally relented, saying that she was hungry anyway, and the couple left the party. As they wandered around in the cold and snowy February night, it was apparent that no food outlets were open. It was at this point that Anna and Anthony apparently separated, with him going back home and Anna heading back to the party alone. Anthony returned home alone at 3.30am and told his mother, who was still up, that Anna had returned to the party alone. Anthony told Anna to text him once she had arrived back at the party, but he did not receive any message. Just over half an hour later, he said that he was going out to look for her, but returned home distraught a short while later with blood on his hands. He claimed that he had retraced the steps that Anna would have been taking back to the party and he had found her discarded backpack on the path with the contents strewn all over the place. It is then he claimed he had found Anna's body just off the path with blood all over the front of her top. After checking for a pulse, he attempted CPR but when that was unsuccessful... He sprinted home. It was at this point that Anthony's mum called 911, and the call was logged at 4.29am. Throughout the whole call, Anthony could be heard in the background saying, Tell them I did not do it. Officer Buddy Martin was the first on the scene, at the Mitchell residence, 1744 McKnight Road where he interviewed Anthony about what he had found. From there, Anthony took them to Hillside Park, a journey which, if Google Maps is correct, is about an eight-minute walk away. When they arrived, they went to the spot that Anthony claimed to have found Anna's belongings. The path was pitch black, and Officer Martin and his partner, Officer Resney, found it nigh on impossible to see anything without a torch. In fact, if they had not had the exact directions that Anthony had given them, they would never have found Anna laying approximately 15 feet from the path. The paramedics pronounced her dead at the scene. During the initial police interview at his home, Anthony said that he had seen a young man with specky blonde hair wearing a white hooded jacket, bending over Anna's body and going through her pockets. When Anthony had approached, he must have startled him, and the young man had run away from the scene. The police now had a description of a suspect. The next day, Jennifer saw on her daughter's Facebook profile, too many rest in peace Anna's. She said that after calling Anna for hours with no answer, she learned of her death by checking social media. When you go onto Facebook and you see RIP Anna, and all of this other stuff on your daughter's Facebook, it's a total shock, she said. I was supposed to hold her in my arms the next day, and now I'll never be able to hold on to her in my arms again. She immediately travelled to St Paul, feeling compelled to see the scene where Anna's body had been found. When she arrived, Mitchell led her to the place in the snow where her daughter had been found. I freaked out, Jennifer said. I scooped my daughter's blood up. It was still all over. The last of her life. I stuffed it into my jacket I probably went crazy, but that is where my baby was murdered. The provisional medical examiner's report stated that Anna had died from exsanguation due to the multiple stab wounds. In the wake of the tragedy, Jennifer found Anthony a great comfort like a true and loyal boyfriend. Even though he had only been with Anna for nine months... She trusted him. He attended all of the services and vigils which were held for Anna, and also was seen on numerous occasions at the makeshift memorial. Anna's funeral took place at Will Barger Memorial Park in Vernon, Texas, on Monday the 4th of March 2013. One thing that looked suspicious to the police within a week of the investigation starting, was that upon going back to the Mitchell residence on the night of the murder, investigators identified blood smears in the vicinity of the upstairs bathroom and traces of blood on a towel. And yet the testimony of Mitchell's own mother stated that he did not go upstairs to the bathroom after he returned home and told his mum to call 911. There was also a number of inconsistencies with his story. The police interrogated Anthony again, this time at the police station. The inconsistencies in his story raised some red flags. Firstly, when asked if Anthony had a torch when he found Anna, he had said no. It was dark at the time. And as the initial officers on the scene had learned, it was impossible to locate the body without a torch. Secondly, Anthony kept lagging behind the police when he went to show them where he had found Anna, claiming that he couldn't go back to where he had found her body. Between what the officers described as his whiny voice and his insistence of not going back there, it raised another red flag. Thirdly, he had said, Look for the drag marks. As mentioned previously, it was extremely dark, and he did not have a torch. So, how could he have seen the drag marks that easily? And fourthly, as I have just mentioned, he had said that he did not go up the stairs, and he had gone straight to his mum to call for help. Police had found some traces of blood in Anthony's bathroom, and it appeared as if someone had tried to clean it up. When the blood was tested, it matched Anna's. The police were starting to think that he might have had more to do with this than just finding Anna's body. Police had also started questioning Anna's friends. They had noticed that Mitchell could be sweet and funny at times, but jealous and controlling at others. They said they had witnessed his angry outbursts in the weeks before Anna had made up her mind to return to Texas, including an incident in which he bashed her kitten's head against her car steering wheel. Not only that, Anna and her friends knew that Anthony kept a pocket knife, and he played with it most of the time. Just keep flicking it in and out. He had been seen at the party flicking his penknife. He was arrested and charged on the 5th of March. On Wednesday the 6th of March, two days after his girlfriend was buried, 17-year-old Anthony Joseph Mitchell made his first court appearance in Ramsey County Court. He was charged with one count of second-degree intentional murder and one count of second-degree unintentional murder. Anna's family and Mitchell's family attended the hearing. In court, Mitchell's attorney asked Ramsey Court Judge, Judge Gail Chang Boer, if Mitchell could be remanded to the custody of his parents. The request was denied by Judge Boer the Ramsey County Attorney's Office wanted to charge Mitchell as an adult. This was allowed, so Mitchell was set to appear in adult court on the 10th of May for his plea hearing. He pleaded guilty to intentional second-degree murder. In court, he explained what happened. In response to questions from his attorney, Sarah Scarborough, He said that he and Anna were at his Maplewood house on the night of the 22nd of February. Anna was living with him and his parents. Mitchell and Anna had planned to travel the next day to Texas, where Jennifer, Anna's mother, lived. Anna's mother had sent her money for her bus ticket, and Mitchell had pawned some items to buy his own ticket. I was going to go down there for three days a week, he said. After they had wandered around attempting to find food at about 2.30am, Anna said she wanted to spend the night at the friend's house. He claimed that he accompanied her for her own protection. They took a paved trail through Hillside Park near Maplewood Middle School. Mitchell bought his cell phone, wallet and folding knife. The folding knife was so that he had protection on the way back from the friend's house, he said. He was trying to hold a conversation with her, but she was very distant. Because he was not getting any answers to his questions from Anna, he told the court, I went around in front of her and I was walking backwards and I continued to try and talk to her face to face. That's when Anna told him to get out of her face, he continued. His attorney, Miss Scarborough, had asked if the subject of the Texas trip had come up, and Mitchell replied yes. Anna said that she did not want me to go to Texas with her, and I thought I heard her say that she was leaving the relationship, Mitchell said. When she pushed me, I fell backwards, and the phone, wallet and knife fell out of my pockets. I picked up the phone and wallet, and Anna picked up the knife and opened it, he alleged. We fought over the knife, he said, and I got it away from Anna. Out of reflex, I stabbed her in the stomach, he said. After that, I was scared. I didn't know what to think. Anna's father, Patrick Hurd, walked out of the courtroom at this point and smacked the door open as he left. Anna's mother, Jennifer Hutchins, left a moment later. Mitchell's statement continued. He said he was terrified after he had stabbed Anna the first time. I stabbed her three more times in the front of her torso, he admitted. Why did you keep stabbing her? his attorney asked. I was afraid she was going to tell, Mitchell said. She turned around to run. I chased after her and stabbed her in the back. Was it your intention to kill her? his attorney asked. Yes, he replied. Anna lay face down in the snow and Mitchell had rolled her over to determine whether she was dead. He said, I dragged her body back into the woods, about 10 feet, so that no one could find her. Prosecutor Dana Mitchell, who was obviously no relation, asked him if he had covered Anna's mouth so that she could not scream. Mitchell replied, I didn't. She screamed. Then he described how when he had got home, He had got his mother to call 911, about two hours later, saying that he had found Anna injured in the park. The court heard how Mitchell was sobbing during this call, and told the dispatcher he tried to perform CPR and denied involvement in her killing. But really, it was him who was responsible. Mitchell was sentenced on the 25th of June 2013. Having pled guilty, part of the deal was that he would serve 22 years. Under the terms of the plea deal, Mitchell would have to serve 14 years in prison and eight in supervised probation. Mitchell did not speak during his sentencing hearing. The defence attorney, Susan Scarborough, told Judge Bore that he was remorseful, contrary to what Anna's family believe. I think this young man is truly tortured by what he has done, and wants the court to know that, Miss Scarborough said. But the prosecutor, Rosetta Severin, said Mitchell had thought only about himself since the murder. He lied repeatedly after killing Anna, even telling the probation department before sentencing that Anna had taken drugs the night she died. We know that this did not occur because the autopsy found no drugs in her system, the prosecutor said. Neither of Anna's parents could bear to sit through the entire sentencing of their daughter's murderer. Anthony Joseph Mitchell Jr. had turned on her and stabbed her five times. The last strike was in her back, Prosecutor Rosetta Severin told the Ramsey Court courtroom. Coward, Patrick Heard whispered from the front row. Severin then disclosed that one of the wounds pierced Anna's heart. A detail previously unknown to the family members. Patrick Hurd spoke again. Piece of shit, he hissed. Then he left the courtroom. After Jennifer had spoken of her unrelenting grief in the victim impact statement, she too left the courtroom. Cries could be heard as the door closed. Anna's parents and other family members spoke tearfully at the sentencing, saying their family was broken and lost since Anna's death. Her mother Jennifer said that Anna's stepfather and her had separated. She was unable to work and couldn't leave the house. Anna's sister and brother had dropped out of school. She said she didn't understand how Mitchell could pretend in the days after the murder that someone else had killed her daughter and that he sympathised with the family. That he said he had tried to help Anna when he found her bleeding in the snow. How could Mitchell look at her in her coffin and not break, she said. How could he kill my precious daughter? I've lost 80 pounds since my daughter's death. I do believe that I'm dying of a broken heart. She was my life, and the way that she was taken, no one should have to go through that. No one. Mitchell is currently incarcerated at Minnesota Correctional Facilities Stillwater Prison, which is only 17 miles from his Maplewood home. He is due to be released on the 7th of September, 2027, when he will be just 32 years old. Still plenty of time for him to have a life. Plenty of time to have a family. Two things that Anna won't have the same opportunity to do. Anna's father Patrick never got over losing his daughter, and he too passed away two years and five days after the death of his daughter at the age of 45. More heartbreak for Nicolette, Justin, Patrick Jr and Amanda. Our second story this week comes from the English seaside city of Bournemouth. Although the lady featured in our next case was not in a relationship with her killer, it's going to make you think. If you were going into a flat share, that you have found advertised, how much do you really know about the person you are going to be living with? So without further ado, the second part of today's episode is dedicated to Stella Domador kuzma Stella Marisabel Domador kuzma was born in 1984 in Venezuela. Stella was working as a cashier in Barclays Bank, but in her spare time she volunteered at a local disabled water sports group. On Sunday, the 1st of July 2018, Stella began renting a room in a shared flat in Richmond Gardens in Bournemouth, a road which was only a short walk away from the centre of Bournemouth's nightlife and only 15 minutes walk away from the beach and pier. She shared the kitchen, bathroom, and toilet facilities with a 19 year old man by the name of Ryan Thornton, who was a pub chef and another woman. Thornton, too, was new to the flat, having moved into his room on Friday, the 22nd of June, nine days prior to Stella. On Saturday, the 7th of July, 2018, Stella had spent the day with her friends on Bournemouth Beach and returned home at around 7pm. The day was also Thornton's 20th birthday and he had gone out drinking and eating with friends and family and watched the England vs Sweden World Cup quarter-final, a game which England won 2-0. He then met two other men and bought some alcohol before spending the remainder of the evening drinking and playing video games. At 4.30am on Sunday the 8th of July, a 999 call was made by a member of the public, requesting an ambulance to Richmond Gardens to help. The victim of the attack was Ryan Thornton, who had said he had been stabbed in the knee by someone who had attacked him in the alleyway police officers who had arrived at the scene decided to check on the welfare of the other occupants in his address in the block of flats 1-9 Mount Hitherbank. Thornton provided them with a set of keys which they used to gain access to the main door and to his bedroom. Officers woke Stella and Thornton's other flatmate by knocking on her door. Inside Thornton's room, officers were alerted to a faint sound of an alarm coming from a partially closed laptop. When they opened the lid, the alarm deactivated and they saw a pornographic film playing on the screen. Officers continued to check the remaining rooms, but the door to Stella's room was locked and there was no reply. The second housemate, informed officers that a spare set of room keys were in the communal kitchen. The police entered Stella's room, which was in darkness. They used their torches to search the room, and discovered a large amount of blood on the bed and the walls of the room. There was a duvet covering the bed, and a large blood-stained kitchen knife on a sofa. The officers lifted the duvet and found Stella's naked body underneath. She had been attacked in her bed and had died of 17 stab wounds to the neck, chest, left arm and leg and her vest top had been cut off with scissors. Thornton, who was still being treated in the back of the ambulance outside, was arrested on suspicion of murder he made no reply and was later taken to hospital for treatment. Following his arrest, the officers found a second set of keys on Thorntons, which belonged to Stella and contained the key to her room. A murder investigation was launched by Dorset Police, led by detectives from the Major Crimes Investigations team. A post-mortem examination determined that the cause of death was multiple stab wounds. Forensic testing later revealed that Stella's blood was found on Thornton's arm and other parts of his body. His semen was also found on Stella's body. The knife was examined and blood from both Stella and Thornton was located on the handle and the blade. Thornton was seen by doctors in hospital, and one asked him how he'd sustained the injuries. Thornton told him, I stabbed myself in the knee out of frustration because I had stabbed someone. He also told doctors that the knife had someone else's blood on it. He was assessed by a consultant psychiatrist, and Thornton told him, that he had been drinking heavily and smoking cannabis and returned home at around 1am. He said he needed money for his rent and decided to take it from Stella. He stated he took a knife from the kitchen to stop her screaming if she woke up. She did wake up and he just reacted and panicked and stabbed her and strangled her. Thornton's first appearance in court was at Paul Magistrate's Court on the 20th of November 2018, on the charge of 11 counts of possessing indecent images of a child. When Thornton's laptop had been examined in the aftermath of Stella's murder, several videos of a violent sexual nature were found, one of which was identified as being the video playing when the officers entered the room. In addition, 572 indecent images of children were found on his laptop, including 98 of the most serious Category A type. This relates to images involving penetrative sexual activity, sexual activity with an animal, or sadism. Thornton entered a guilty plea to all 11 counts, and he was handed an eight-month prison sentence. Thornton then appeared before Winchester Crown Court on the 30th of November 2018, charged with Stella's murder. The Honourable Mrs Justice May presided. Matthew Jewell QC acted on behalf of the Wessex Department of the Crown Prosecution Service, and Nigel Licky QC was the defence barrister. Ryan Justin Thornton pleaded guilty and was jailed for life and told he would serve a minimum of 22 years and 6 months before he was eligible for parole. During sentencing, Mr Jewel QC told the court how Stella was well educated and well travelled. He said, She is described as being a lovely person, fun to be around, warm, and confident, always smiling, and someone you would instantly get on with. Mr. Jewell added that she had not been in a relationship with the defendant, and had described him as untidy and dirty. Nigel Licky QC, the defence barrister, said, Thornton was lonely and isolated, and added, He went in planning to enact some kind of sexual fantasy, but in the real world she screamed and he reacted and panicked. He killed the young lady in the most terrifying circumstances. He undressed her and carried out one act of sexual gratification. During the sentencing hearing, the judge heard a victim impact statement read by one of her cousins, on behalf of Stella's mother, Olga. She wrote, Stella was an active member of the community. She loved to volunteer her time to help others, and had a particular soft spot for animals, often rescuing strays, helping them find new homes, and when possible, adopting them. Stella was responsible, focused, hard worker, and determined when she faced difficulties. She left footprints in the hearts of everyone who had the pleasure to meet her, and she will always be remembered for her big and generous heart. Stella, as many of her family members did, left Venezuela in the hope of finding a new home, a place where she felt safe, where justice and law existed. She chose the UK for its job opportunities and its organised and safe society. I have missed not having Stella with me every day for the last four years, but I knew she was only a phone call away. Now, every time I want to reach her, I have to face the reality that she is no longer with us. I have no words to express how much it hurts knowing that Stella won't be joining us anymore at Christmas dinners, family trips, or simply to chat to know how her day has been. Stella loved so much to be around people, sharing meals, or just her day's work stories. This is why, when she heard that a room had become available, She didn't think twice about moving back into a flat. I never imagined that Stella's life could be in jeopardy in the place that she loved so much to call home. I spoke to her the night when she came back from having a fantastic day at the beach with one of her best friends from home. Stella just told me how happy and tired she was and that she was looking forward to going to the beach the next day as the weather forecast was looking good. I will never forget the moment my phone rang the very next day and her friend told me that something had happened to Stella and she was no longer alive. My heart stopped for a few seconds. I could not find the words to say anything other than, Stella cannot be dead. I spoke to her last night, and she was at home. The violent, tragic, unexpected and irreparable loss of our beloved Stella, so soon in her life, so far from her family, has caused profound sorrow to all those who knew her, family, friends and work colleagues. I've received an enormous amount of messages from all over the world and they were all in shock trying to find explanations for such an horrific event Every night I go to bed thinking about Stella's dream and future plans to bring me to the UK to live with her Only God knows what Stella went through on that horrible night Nobody deserves to have their beautiful life end in such a heartbreaking way one's freedom ends where another begins. Unfortunately, someone crossed Stella's path and decided that he had the authority to violate her rights and take her life away. Stella did not even have the opportunity to defend herself as she was asleep when the cowardly murderer perpetrated this crime. How can any members of our family and her friends even feel secure sharing common accommodation? Stella was by no means a big earner, but she always made sure that her mother, her brother, niece and nephew were never short of food, medicine and clothes. And when needed, Stella would cover the rent expenses, making sure we had a safe roof over our heads. Stella will always be remembered as a joyful person with a sassy smile that embraced life. She brought happiness to all those around her. This is why I push myself every day to get out of bed and remember my only daughter, who was my pillar, not only emotionally but financially too. Losing someone you love is always a sad, difficult moment. But losing a daughter in such a way is against reason. The violent and abrupt way it happened is just beyond any pain I have ever suffered in my life. Every day I ask myself the same question. Why Stella? He barely knew her. I only wish that the criminal is locked up so that a tragedy like Stella's can never happen again to someone else. Our family wishes to thank the police and everyone involved in Stella's case for their support. Nothing will bring my daughter back, but I just hope that justice prevails and people in Bournemouth can feel safe. In memory of Stella, I now live my life with no excuses. One life to live, not knowing When and how it will end. The Honourable Mrs. Justice May said that there was no doubt that Thornton entered Stella's room at night when she was asleep with the intention to have forced sex with her. The judge told him, You impulsively decided to make a present for yourself on your 20th birthday of violent forced sex. She added, the bewilderment and the terror she experienced can only be imagined. The senior investigating officer, Detective Chief Inspector Sarah Derbyshire, said, This was a truly awful crime. Ryan Thornton was fueled by alcohol, drugs and pornography when he decided to go into Stella's bedroom armed with a knife. Our thoughts, above all, remain with Stella's family and friends. I hope that Ryan Thornton's admission of guilt and subsequent imprisonment today is of some small comfort. There wasn't as much information on Stella's case. Even the court blurb was brief. But it was an important case to flag up due to how many people going to flat shares not knowing anything about any of the people that they are living with. So that's it for this week. This is the penultimate show of the series. I need a break as I'm starting to get writer's block. Please remember, if you enjoyed the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page. True Crime Fix discussion. I am thoroughly enjoying interacting with everybody on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Fix Podcast I also have an Instagram account so search True Crime Fix Also if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com or go through the Contact Us page on the website Until next time Stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone